you have your Bibles, let's turn to Exodus 31. This chapter is the uh, end of a section in Exodus where God has been explaining the tabernacle to Moses. Uh, Since the end of chapter 24, Moses has been in a cloud on top of Mount Sinai. Uh, Since that point, we tried to lift the proverbial plane as we walked through that portion of the text so that we could see the forest without getting stumbled over the trees are the minute details. Uh, The last instructions that God gave to Moses before he descends back down to where the people are, are the ones that we're going to read here in just a minute. Uh, This explains the who, like who is going to be skilled enough to build this tabernacle, and then secondly, when, on what days may we build. Uh, We take the book of Exodus in context to the whole Bible to help us understand its meaning in light of Christ. Exodus chapter 31, beginning at verse 1, this is God's word. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Oholiab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. The tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the mercy seat that is on it and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils, The pure lampstand with all its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offerings with all its utensils and the basin and its stand and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest and the garments for his sons for their service as priest and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place according to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. And the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It's a sign forever between me and the people of Israel. That in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And God gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, The two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. This is God's word. Let's pray for the help of his spirit. Now, Lord God, as we come to your word, we ask that you would grant to us the help of your Holy Spirit. So that you who know your people would move within their hearts and give us a tenderness to your word. We ask that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit says 
And Father, would you be willing again to use an ordinary, sinful, crooked stick to point the narrow way to Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. The manufacturer includes an instruction manual, an owner's manual, with your purchase. And if you're like me, there's a, a moment in which you're initially thankful to have it. I've got to figure out how to put this thing together or how to make it work properly. But it doesn't take long, after Christmas especially, to begin to have a collection of owner's manuals. And then what do you do with them all? Well, most of us, I think, have some sort of graduated scale, I guess. Uh, you keep the owner's manual uh, to your car, but you don't necessarily have to keep the one for your electric pencil sharpener. And then somewhere in the middle, there's a dividing point, maybe between your bicycle and your television, where you say, well, I've got to keep one of these and throw the other one out. Owner's manuals, though, in spite of what manufacturers probably think, they're really the baseline of proper stewardship. And here's what I mean. Uh, when we're talking about things, you need an owner's manual. But when you begin to graduate to things that are more important, in fact, higher than things like people, you know that proper stewardship is necessary, but you don't necessarily get the owner's manual. So this new bride will struggle to figure out if there is more going on in her, her husband's head than he is saying. And she cannot figure out where the instructions are to turn up and adjust his emotional intelligence. He seems not there. And every parent who drives home with a child from the hospital quickly learns there's proper stewardship required here, but no owner's manual. You just have to figure it out. And so I would say that if an owner's manual is required for your things, and yet you also know that there's proper stewardship required with people, the Bible says there is another level of things which require proper stewardship, and those are spiritual things. Chapter 31 teaches that every meaningful gift requires proper stewardship. So this morning we'll go over your spiritual gifts, your spiritual reminder, and then thirdly, your spiritual testimony. The passage begins with your spiritual gifts. You remember that the tabernacle was designed by God, explained to Moses on top of Mount Sinai. Moreover, we're told that Moses actually saw a copy of what the tabernacle should look like. We've had six chapters answering two questions. What is to be built and why is it to be built this way? And then when you think back on all that we've covered in order to answer those two questions, you remember we tried hard not to get into the weeds. We looked for the meaning. We looked for the application of the tabernacle itself, of the garments, of the priest, of the oil and incense, and each individual furnishing of the tabernacle. But it shouldn't seem odd to us at all that before Moses heads down the mountain, God should answer the who question. Who is going to be skilled enough to build this ornate design? And God says, I have handpicked the man myself. Verse 1, Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. Not only has he called this man, verse 3 uses a particular phrase to explain what God's hand selection of Bezalel means. Verse 3, I have filled him with the Spirit of God. What does that mean? If you ask many Christians today, 
maybe at your big mega churches in Auburn or around the country? What does it mean if God fills a person with his spirit? You'll get an assortment of answers, some conglomeration that sounds like this, filled with the spirit. Oh, that means the Holy Spirit gives you some deep, powerful emotions and feelings, almost like you're, you're transported, otherworldly type feelings. It's an emotional boost. To be filled with the Spirit, oh wow, that means you, you live on a higher spiritual plane. Someone else will add, yeah, being filled with the Spirit, it's like a second work of grace. It comes after the first work. It's deeper than the first work of grace. God finally takes over your life because you're finally willing to surrender. Then you start to exude new gifts that you didn't have before. You may start speaking in tongues or have private prayer languages. Well, number one, that's not how that phrase is used here. Number two, that's not how that phrase is used anywhere else in the Bible. And then number three, prior to 1901... Prior to the start of the Pentecostal movement, no one in church history would have ever defined filled with the Spirit as anything like bare emotions or higher spiritual planes or a boost of feelings. Emotions are good. They're God-given. Knowing God more deeply is, is very good. Feelings can be good. That's just simply not how the Bible defines filled with the Spirit. And the reason it's worth pausing here is understanding that phrase helps you explain your own spiritual gifts and what those mean for you. Douglas Stewart, who's an Old Testament scholar, says being filled with the Spirit is a biblical idiom for having from God ability to do or say exactly what God wants done or said. That's how it's used here. That's also how it is going to be used in Deuteronomy chapter 34. Moses dies. Joshua is raised up. And the Bible says he is raised up and filled with the Spirit so that he can lead God's people. Later, Micah chapter 3 verse 8. The prophet is filled with the Spirit to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. So it's a God-given ability to do or say exactly what God wants said or done. And then even in the book of Acts... When a person is filled with the Spirit, it includes their ability to speak God's Word as He wants it spoken. That's actually what's happening in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 13. So the original language of this text makes it very clear. God didn't give this random guy four individual things. God gave him one thing. He gave him His Spirit he didn't give him the spirit plus ability plus intelligence plus knowledge. To be honest, Bezalel probably learned his skill at the lap of his father where he learned how to craft things with metal. But he is filled with God's spirit so that his abilities and his intelligence and his knowledge are refined and perfected for God's purposes. Doug Stewart goes on to say it like this. The Spirit of God enabled Bezalel to be wiser, more insightful, more knowledgeable, and more capable of any sort of work to which God assigned him. The guy is a craftsman. 
and he is like some of you. He actually has some skill to work with his hands and and build things which are, are beautiful and wonderful. Verse four, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, bronze, cutting stones for setting, carving wood, to work in every craft. In fact, whatever is necessary for the construction of the tabernacle, just as God intends, this one man is not going to do all of the work himself. He's going to oversee the work. Verse 6, God also appoints Oholiab of the tribe of Dan. And then he gives, it says, to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. If you fast forward and, and jump over to chapter 35, verse 25, it also says that every skillful woman was a part of the work as well. Now, why is this relevant for you? Because only men of the tribe of Levi are ever going to touch anything inside this tabernacle once it is built. But while it is being built, God uses the gifts of even a guy from the tribe of Judah and a guy from the tribe of Dan and anybody else who has the ability and the willingness to pitch in and help. Sounds very much like the church, doesn't it? where God uses the gifts and the skills of anyone who wants to pitch in and help. Doug Stewart's definition is biblical, which I think is why it carries over seamlessly to the New Testament, why it carries over to you and to me. To be filled with God's Spirit is to be given by God the ability to do or say exactly what God wants done or said. And so in the New Testament, when all of God's people are filled with the Spirit at their conversion, the Spirit of God begins to operate in God's people on two levels. The first is that most basic level. It is sanctification. God's Spirit living in me shows me, Galatians 5, 17. It's God's Spirit acting through His Word that shows me that the deeds of my flesh are inconsistent contrary to the indwelling of this Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit who says to my heart exactly what God intends to say to my heart. And it's the Spirit of God, and I promise you, it is only the Spirit of God who sends you running to Christ. People who are not filled with the Spirit do not go looking for Christ. They do not go running to God. So do you feel conviction over your sins? Do you have some sense that you cannot keep running? But instead you must fly to Christ. Well then praise God. Because that means you're filled with the Holy Spirit. You would never know your sin. You'd never come running to Jesus if God's Spirit wasn't giving you the ability to do what needs to be said and done. Oftentimes in the freshman and sophomore year of college, students try to figure out a way to run for a second, to not give ear, to not be attentive when the Spirit says, that's sin. But friends, when the Spirit says, that's sin, you should actually give thanks to God. It's not because your friend is annoying and they're, they're concerned about you. It's because the Spirit of God says, 
run to Christ. And you can say, praise God, that he would plant his spirit in me. More than that, do you see progress? Oh, I know how progress goes. I've got sins of my own. And it is more slow than you think it should be. But take a look, not at the short story, but the long story. Is there progress? In other words, are you more like Christ today than you were five years back or 10 years back or 30 years back? And if you are, praise God. It means you're filled with the Spirit. The other way that the Spirit of God operates is in the body of Christ. Taking all of his planting of the Spirit in each one of you, he pulls us together into a body, and it's the church, which is precisely what's displayed in chapter 31. And unfortunately, I think many of us have a limited view of what kinds of gifts God gives to his people through his Spirit. So even in Romans chapter 12 or 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul lists types of gifts but the lists aren't supposed to be exhaustive. How do I know? Well, if they're exhaustive, then our friend Bezalel does not have any spiritual gifts. But clearly he does. This is a guy who is an artist. He's a craftsman. Many people have pointed out, if you simply read 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12, music is not a gift. But clearly God gifts certain people with abilities in music. And he invites them to use those for his own glory. You're not going to find lists of financial gifts. Some people are great with numbers and budgeting. And it is a profound gift for the good of the church. Others will open their homes and they will treat people with tenderness and with care. That's actually a gift. One man in the church will call someone if he hasn't seen them in a number of weeks. They come to his mind and he just picks up the phone and and calls to check on them. And another person is gifted with organization and, and she brings together a group of volunteers for every project. Another person has an eye for beauty and, and everything she touches in the realm of fellowship and, and meals is graced with warmth and, and beauty and it enhances the atmosphere for the sake of the church. Here's the point. I mean, you do not need to expect a lightning bolt to drop from the sky to say, Bam! Here's your gift. You can take a spiritual gifts inventory if you want. Sometimes they're helpful. But more often than not, spiritual gifts are used in the church much like the gifts of Bezalel and Oholiab. And this is actually what God ordinarily does. You have some things that you do well, some ways that you're wired naturally, and God shapes and refines those gifts, sometimes in ways that you couldn't predict. And so he takes your natural wiring and he uses them for kingdom purposes. When I was a kid, I could remember the stupidest jingles from the radio and television. I could remember lyrics and words. And my parents would go, what's that for? And I would go, I wish I could remember my math facts like that. 
All I'm saying is that God wires his people in individual ways. And he shapes that wiring for his purposes. And some of you need to hear that today. I mean, you have gifts that can be used by you to help build the church. If you're good with your hands and you can fix things, that's not just some menial skill that you picked up somewhere. It can be deployed for real spiritual purposes. And if you have artistic abilities coming out of the Protestant Reformation, so many of our Protestant forefathers were afraid, well, we don't want to have pictures of Jesus. We don't want to have icons of Jesus. So anybody who had an artistic gift, well, that's not useful. It's clearly useful. It is useful in the building of the tabernacle. It's still useful today. The thing about gifts, and it's most clearly illustrated in this tabernacle, spiritual gifts in any church have to function by way of unison. They have to function in tandem with other gifts. They have to be deployed under the oversight of the elders of a church. And so in one sense, it doesn't matter if you're the best teacher in the church, the best musician in the church, the most gifted person with technology. You must work in coordination with the body. It doesn't matter if your organizational skills could fix every broken system in the church. Your gifts have to work in cooperation under the oversight of the church. It's actually another reason why church membership matters. You see, your gifts can only rightly be deployed in the body of Christ when you openly declare, I would like to be a part of this particular body of Christ. Of what value is a hand which has been severed from the body and it's simply sitting on the back row? I mean, hands are useful. But the spiritual value of that hand to the local church can only be had when the hand says, I want to be a part of the body. God uses far more than religious leaders to build his church. He uses every person. He uses a variety of gifts that some people would cast off as unimportant. But every gift assigned to a local church is a useful gift to be used in the church. Which is why every meaningful gift requires proper stewardship. We've looked at your spiritual gifts. Now we're going to look at your spiritual reminder. If I ever wrote a sermon that was shaped like a funnel, it is this one. Don't panic. They get shorter as we go. You remember in chapter 24 through 30, God answered the what and the why questions. What is to be built? Why is it to be built? And then the first 11 verses of this chapter we covered answered the who question. Who is going to do the building? And now God answers the when question. When is the tabernacle to be built? And God says, you construct the tabernacle every day of the week, but not on the Sabbath day. If you've been with us through the entire book of Exodus, we've already come to this command on two separate occasions. Verse 16, where God connects the reasoning to the creation. He said, that's how I did it when I created the world. Chapter 20, again, it's the more formal stating of it, which is in the Ten Commandments. And there, God grounds it in the fact that he has lovingly made a decision to choose Israel to be his people. But here... He roots it in both creation and salvation. God says, verse 13, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. Above all, 
He just explained with the most minute detail how to construct the tabernacle. And then he says, above all. Why is this above all? Because the Sabbath is so much more than simply not working one day out of the week. It's meant to be a spiritual reminder. Why is Sabbath keeping above all? Verse 13 explains it. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. That is, I'm the one who makes you holy. I'm the one who sets you apart. What's the implication? You can rest. You can reflect. You can imitate your creator. First, you can spiritually rest. You're made holy by God. Not by what you do for God. You didn't set yourself apart. You weren't out in a field singing, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. God says, no, I sanctify you. You can't make yourself holy. And yet every time you pause to worship and rest on the Sabbath day, you should remember that. Hebrews 4 says that there remains a Sabbath rest for God's people. In fact, it didn't go away But that weekly pause for worship and rest on the Lord's day, which is now Sunday, that rest is most fully understood as a spiritual rest in Christ. If you want to know what we said in the past about very specific details concerning the Sabbath and how to enjoy it by way of application, you can go back and listen to chapter 16 and chapter 20. The Bible teaches that the, the Lord's, that the Sabbath is advanced by the resurrection day. So that we now celebrate Sunday as the Lord's day. First, God says, you can rest in Christ. Your salvation is accomplished. Secondly, he says, you can reflect. I mean, why does God need to say this again? The same reason he needs to say it to you and me. And that is that every fallen inclination of your deceived heart leads you to believe that you have chosen to follow God and that you are a fairly good servant of God, that you're going to do something for God and that by your continual striving, you will earn more and more favor and love. And God says the Sabbath should cause you to reflect. Friends, they're building a tabernacle. It would be easy to confuse what they are going to do for God with what God says he will do in them. God says, I will sanctify you. Do you think of this day as a weekly pause to reflect on the spiritual comfort that is yours you pause you rest you reflect on this fact everywhere else in the entire world you run on a performance treadmill and on that treadmill you believe you are earning acceptance God says not with me you've already got the relationship you cannot earn more of my love than I've already given you You don't need more of my love in order to be received by me. You can rest. You can reflect. 
Lastly, you can imitate. That's what he says in verse 17. It's a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. It is said that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. The sovereign king of creation condescends with language to accommodate your sensibilities. Is God actually tired after creation? No. Does he really have to rest on the Sabbath day? No, I promise. He'll be fine. But just as he has given you spiritual gifts to be used in the church, he's also given you a weekly gift, the Lord's Day. Because Christ rose from the dead on Resurrection Sunday, you can come and rest and worship every Sunday because God is inviting you to glorify him and to enjoy him by imitating him. When I was five years old, I saw that my dad had cowboy boots. And from then on, I wanted a pair of cowboy boots. And then I saw that my dad could drive a stick shift car or truck, and I wanted to learn how to drive a stiff ship, stick shift car or truck. My dad wore these little white T-shirts, these classic tees, and I wanted to get some classic tees because I wanted to imitate my father. God says the Sabbath is, is my gift to you, and I want you to learn to imitate your father. Because when you imitate my pattern, it is evidence that you love me and that you want to be like me. And every meaningful gift requires proper stewardship. Your spiritual gifts, your spiritual reminder will close with your spiritual testimony. Chapter 20, God spoke with his own voice the Ten Commandments from the top of Mount Sinai. Chapter 24, God said, Moses, come up to the top of the mountain. I'm going to give you tablets of stone with the law and the commandments on it. But it is not until you read verse 18 of chapter 31 that you learn that these tablets are actually written by the finger of God. It says, he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony. Tablets of stone written with the finger of God. So the stones preach permanence. The finger of God preaches permanence. Why two tablets? Well, God was a little wordy and you could only fit five on this one and five on the next one. No. This is actually the way ancient peace treaties work in the Near East. Two copies. One for the people one for God himself. And the stones are meant to testify that we both agree to the terms of this relationship, and the terms are faithfulness. You see, the king of creation has gathered and and redeemed a slave people to be his own, and the two stone tablets symbolize the law. It symbolizes the fact that we are going to be bound together by virtue of obedience And yet, as soon as next week, you will hear how fragile this testimony is. 
Because even as God upholds his side of the deal, the Hebrew people are right now at the bottom of the hill, breaking the very commandments which Moses holds in his arms. So how can a a permanent covenant be salvaged if one of the parties is unfaithful? That word testimony is crucial. Because you see, if the the relationship between God and sinful man will be held together, then the offended party must testify to its permanence. He must forgive the unfaithfulness. And the apostle who laid his head on the chest of Christ on the night of his betrayal, even John tells us that this is precisely what God did. God loves his own son so much that he exchanged his obedience for your disobedience. God loves his own son so much that he had agreed to accept your faith in his son as substitute. It's a matter of faith. 1 John Chapter 5, verse 9, this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son has this testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And here's the point, verse 11, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. They had something written by the finger of God on a stone tablet. You have something more permanent, something written by the finger of God on your stony heart. God has transcribed the words of faith so that you might believe his son and at the end of the day your spiritual testimony is Christ and that's really all you've got and so every meaningful gift requires proper stewardship let's pray oh God we ask that you will bless and help us so that having heard your word, we would embrace it, that you would teach us from it and cause your word to land in the hearts of your people. I pray that your spirit would continue to move forth so that we might know you as you are revealed in your word and in a moment in the sacraments. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.